The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, uh, we are not uh, clear on our new sound system, so um, I'm going to try to project, and if you have difficulty hearing, either raise your hand or move up, please. So can everyone hear me all right right now? I'll try to keep that up during the guided meditation, but you might want to come forward when you can. Oh, sure. Um, so uh, we have had a couple months to practice uh, with the what are called the wisdom factors or the wisdom uh, group of the path which is right view and right intention. And hopefully you've had a bit of a taste uh, to start with of why, you know, the perspective for why we practice, which is right view. I think most of us came here because there's some level of stress or suffering that we'd like to alleviate in our lives. And that's part of our purpose. But then we get a chance to really start to explore what are the causes of that and how can we bring it to an end? And also to f- be able to feel eventually, and maybe even in small doses, when it does come to an end, when we actually recognize something in motion and we make different choices. So um, this is you know, enough right view to get us started. And it's also, right view is also the culmination of the path. You know, when we embody that practice of being um, conscious of our actions and consequences internally and externally, then we're at the ultimate level of right view. Also, right intention. You know, we, we've had a chance uh, this last month to explore what, this is one of the major ways that things get set in motion internally and externally, and that is what is the intention that we're bringing to it? Is what we're doing partaking of clinging partaking of ill will or partaking of a little bit of harming or a lot of harming and and if so we can see that roll forward into suffering if those things are not present if we are have let go of clinging let go of ill will and let go of harming then we can uh, start to feel that our intention is at least you know, neutral, not creating more suffering for ourselves. And eventually, we may find that we're practicing letting go. It can feel good to practice renunciation. It can feel great to practice goodwill. And we can feel um, compassion uh, for other people. And our non-harming rolls into some of these beautiful qualities. So this, you know, really is are starting with what are the internal things that are going on that create suffering, either lead to suffering or lead to freedom from suffering. And then this month we get into the next grouping on the path, which is called the moral discipline group or sometimes the group of ethical factors. So today we'll focus on right speech, next month on right action, and then after that on right livelihood. So this is where we really get to see where we are either doing the practicing the intentions that create more suffering or practicing the intentions that alleviate suffering and lead to freedom because this is where the rubber meets the road i mean it's often when you're we, we speak all day long we speak to one another we speak internally to ourselves you know we think and pretty quickly we get feedback one way or the other sometimes not so quickly sometimes in the long term we get feedback that the way we're talking to ourselves or to others is uh, maybe not as kind as it could be, maybe not as compassionate it could be, maybe isn't you know really renouncing or letting go of things that are harmful. Maybe it's still clinging to some things that feel like they could be okay, but somehow the feedback we get tells us that they're they're not really helpful. So with speech, we really get a great chance to see how this is rolling forward, how this broad brush in right view of actions and consequences, comma, and the result of comma, either is leading us towards more happiness and more freedom with ourselves and other people, or it's leading us again into this wheel of samsara, this cycle of suffering. Um, So um, I love that Bhikkhu Bodhi says that maybe this moral discipline group is less, uh, less about ethics and more about the spiritual practice of mental purification. 
Because honestly, this stuff all starts inside. And maybe if we slow down this month to look at speech a little bit, or we start to observe and um, take care of how we're speaking, we can start to notice how it brings about mental purification to, to stop for a moment and look at what we're about to say or what we're thinking about ourselves. Um, if we have harmonious, more harmonious internal speech, um, that leads to more harmonious external speech and relationships that are working more um, skillfully and comfortably. And then eventually that can lead to freedom from suffering. So with that, uh, let's start with a little guided sit. Um, and just as you take your uh, relaxed, comfortable posture for a few minutes of sitting, first allow yourself to take inventory of how you are right now, how your body is, how your breath is, how your thoughts are, and what that might reflect about how you've been speaking to yourself, for example, today or recently. Just see if you can feel or notice any prevailing weather in your thoughts, in your body, in your breath. Your body may provide a little bit of a snapshot of how you've been living your life recently. To what extent you've lived a pressured or rushed life, a life that's very full, and um, whether that fullness is bringing you fatigue or it's bringing you ease, whether the way you're thinking about yourself and others your internal speech is leading to some abundance of energy or lack of energy, whether it's bringing you ease or <coughs> reflecting some things that you'd like to study a little bit more in yourself. Letting yourself notice any thoughts or mental states that are present that might give you a snapshot of the mental weather. Are there any 
results of the kinds of thinking you've been doing about your life that are here present in your body and your mind right now? Are there any causes and conditions or actions still rolling through in the form of a mood or a mental state? And perhaps even allowing yourself to look at your attitude or uh, state of meditation right at this moment and see if there's any subtle way that you're speaking to yourself during your meditation about, you know, it could be a little bit of mental coaching or encouragement or... there's any very subtle criticism there or subtle agenda, allowing yourself to take in even that internal speech, if any, or subtle thoughts and leanings about the meditation itself. about how your body is in meditation, how your emotional state is in meditation, and how your attitude is in this meditation at this moment.
And in the last couple of minutes of this sitting, allowing yourself some supportive, wise intention and wise internal speech, whatever you may have noticed about your body, your breath, your thoughts, your mood, your mind state, your attitude, that very act of observing is an act of goodwill. It's an act of compassion for yourself and for others. And perhaps partaking of some of that wholesome speech that allows you to acknowledge any observations, discoveries, and also any simple ease that was present, any mindfulness that was present, any of these beautiful factors that help lead eventually to more and more freedom. Allow yourself to notice those. Hey, can you all hear me? We're having speaker problems in case you missed that. <clears throat> so our plan for this afternoon is that I will talk for a while on what are the Buddha's teachings about right speech, introduce those, and hopefully just plant some seeds in your mind that might come up to you during the next month of practice with it. And we'll discuss that in our small groups. And then Liz will say some more specifically about practicing with listening and speaking. And we'll try and exercise with that toward the end of the day. So right speech is defined as follows. The Buddha says, and what bhikkhus, what monks is right speech? Abstaining from false speech, abstaining from divisive speech, abstaining from harsh speech, abstaining from idle chatter. This is called right speech. Okay, so the first of these aspects of right speech is to abstain from false speech. Notice that as often in the teachings, the definition is given in the negative, to refrain from false speech. So I think this highlights the relational and pragmatic and ethical aspect of this teaching and it relates it back to our intentionality, the intention of non-ill will and non-cruelty. It's not so much about what is the truth with a capital T and how we must proclaim it all the time, but it's foremost about not using the act of speaking to carry out intentions to mislead, to deceive, to harm, to gain some unfair advantage over other people. It would be quite a different world we were living in if everyone would practice just this one. <laughs> yeah. And as we practice this, of course, it becomes this great window on the operating factors of intention and view. Why are we fudging the truth in this case? Why are we withholding something? 
So as we begin to look at this, we may discover a whole range of circumstances that sometimes tend to lead us into some degree of speaking falsely. At one extreme, there's a sort of just outright intention for gain or deceit. You know, you might find yourself just simply saying something that isn't true. And you can at least be honest with yourself about some of your edge cases. We all have them. Maybe it's in the area of part of your job is to sell something that, you know, might not be the best product for this person, but it's not your job to say that. And so there are are lots of edge cases that we run into. Um, It's a window maybe on how our whole view of how to get along in the world came up and what other people are going to do and what it takes to get by in certain situations. There's also the whole area of attachment and identification with our views. In this world we live in now of so-called fake news and data and opinion overload, how do we discuss the issue? We have to talk to each other about what's going on in the world, so how do we do this in a way that's responsible? One of my favorite teachings on this is from a dialogue that the Buddha had with someone named Chunky. And he asked, how do we preserve the truth? How's a way to preserve the truth? And the Buddha answered in a very interesting teaching that things like faith, approval, oral tradition, reasoned cogitation, reflective exception, we might add read it on the internet and all kinds of other things, they may turn out either way in the future. They may turn out, they sound good now, they may turn out to be true or false. Or they might sound not true now and they might turn out to be true or false later. They might appear different. So the Buddha then says that if a person has faith in something, you preserve truth when you say, my faith is this. But you do not yet come to the definite conclusion, only this is true, anything else is wrong. So it's this idea of prefacing. What is, as far as you know, what is the origin and the and the source and the truth value of what you're going to say. As I read in the New York Times, this, this, and it, or as upon reflecting it seems to me that this. That's a way that you preserve truth because that's the truth of how you came by this piece of information and you can share it in that context. So we often might find ourselves in the heat of an argument drawn into exaggeration and generalization. That's an area where I find I start kind of making up statistics about how I know I'm right, everybody's like this, nobody experiences that, whatever. And those kind of statements are obviously just desperately grasping at ways to bolster my opinion. And uh, it's really clamping down on this only this is true idea. So then it shades into getting more confusing with more complicated when we're in some kind of internal emotional confusion or we have shame around some of the things that we think or have done, fear of social consequences of telling the truth. We often want to be seen in a better light by others when we're recounting our behaviors and our habits. So this takes a lot of deeper practice, really deeply listening to yourself to begin to recognize and tolerate and resolve these internal conflicts so that you're more comfortable with the truth of why you did something, more able to see it as part of the human condition, more able to, you know, hold it in a, in a perspective that's, that's something that you're working on. It takes courage. It takes finding wise spiritual friends or maybe people from the various healing professions that you can talk with more honestly, that you can work through different ways that you, that you find difficult to simply tell the truth in public. Then there's the whole area of what we might call social fibbing, this sort of, you know, oh yes, I like the present, yes, it's a beautiful dress, and where you might think something else. Um, And why not do this? You know, we all do this all the time. It's an area where we basically have a good intention. It's a good intention not to cause harm. So there's a little bit of a conflict between two good intentions there. And why not just do that all the time? So it's interesting to reflect on why, why is that slightly uncomfortable, always just going along with what's the nice thing to say. It reinforces this kind of distancing from the truth. It reinforces a kind of need to control what everybody's thinking and ha- other people's moods. 
it kind of perpetuates not really being known for what you really think and perpetuates, a, you know, I've thanked a certain person in my life for a certain strain of gifts year after year and then I get the same gifts year after year and it, I feel like it's building up a sense that I like this kind of music and I don't know that I do actually. <laughs> and so I'm just feeling farther and farther from really being known by this person. Um, it's also a question of can you trust the other person's process of learning to work with the truth of the situation. There's a kind of patronizing lack of trust in other people to be able to learn to hear what's going on. So we still want to find ways to be kind and courteous, but that don't have necessarily these long-term effects. Sometimes the motive, a motive within us that might feel like telling the truth, telling it like it is, it actually can lead to unskillful communication. So there's another very important passage where the Buddha talks about other qualities of right speech. A statement endowed with these five factors is well-spoken, blameless and unfaulted. Which five? It's spoken at the right time. It's spoken in truth. It's spoken affectionately. It's spoken beneficially. And it's spoken with a mind of goodwill. So a couple of those are really important to look at. Timely, timely, I mean they all are, but I want to highlight here timeliness and beneficial. So there might be uh, some very strong, especially emotional, highly emotionally charged feelings of this is the truth and you want to put it out there. But is it timely? Can it be heard in a way that's actually beneficial? So we don't have to just be spewing out everything that's on our minds or everything regarding our current emotional state all the time to be in line with this um, teaching around speaking the truth. I read an interesting uh, article a while back that compares the kind of suppressing, conforming, saying what just what people want to hear instead of what seems true to you. That's one thing that's very difficult and not called for. Another thing is this kind of venting, pouring out, just saying whatever comes out of you. And a third thing is actual communication <laughs> based on the desire to actually communicate. And he's making the point that what, what you have communicated is what is heard by the other person. So if you are, you know, we'll get more into this with some of the other factors. But it's very interesting to genuinely look at what are you intending to convey? What effect are you intending to have on the other person? Um, it's not a one-way street. It involves checking what's been understood and how is it landing and how are they hearing what you're saying. There's a lot of wisdom these days about how to communicate difficult situations. For example, a whole nonviolent communication movement has lots of wise advice on having difficult conversations. Trying things that are very much in line with the Dharma, trying to be objective, talking about here's what I've observed, these are the feelings that I'm experiencing, these are my needs. Maybe you can make a make clear what it is you would like the other person to do. So these are all a little bit that truth-preserving quality. This is what I've seen, this is how I feel, and not so much pronouncements about this is how it is. And so as Liz was mentioning in the guided meditation, apart from all these communication issues, it's very important that we can be, can we be honest with ourselves? So you yourself internally are kind of the first line of practice on speaking the truth in how you talk to yourself. Are you really listening and discerning all those internal voices that are just habits? You know, they, they all employ these false generalizations, exaggerations, cruelty, plain untruth, and we just, we get hooked into just like mainlining that stuff sometimes for hours at a time listening to this internal talk. You really stop, wait. Is this how I would talk to another person? Is this what's is this actually true? Where is this coming from? Whose voice is this? And really becoming um, honest with yourself about what is your best feeling for what's true in the moment. And then, of course, this whole teaching points to the very profound importance of deeper truth in our practice. It's almost, at least in working with yourself internally, it's kind of a sense of devotion to the truth, to discovering the truth of our experience by 
direct observation and this deep discernment of what is the real truth of this moment. Not something that you can put in words, but something that is just the experience. This feels the way it feels. And this lightless seeing is happening. On that level, these things are incontrovertible truths that we can find a, a, a devotion to being able to tune into. So the second factor is not, speech should be not divisive. And here's a nice paragraph where the Buddha expounds on what that means. What he has heard here, he does not tell there to break those people apart from these people here. What he has heard there, he does not tell here to break these people apart from those people there. Thus reconciling those who have broken apart or cementing those who are united He loves concord, delights in concord, enjoys concord, speaks things that create concord. So it's pointing to, this again is related to the intentions behind our speech. It's maybe a little bit more subtle than outright lying. But again, it's a question of are we coming from a self-serving and harmful place or are we coming from this intention to create concord? In a personal context, this often amounts to looking at our habits of gossiping, backbiting, putting people down, talking about people behind their backs in general, maybe even analyzing, psychoanalyzing other people without really knowing them very well, you know, talking to each other that way. There's a habit of currying favor with someone by putting down someone else. You know, it creates that little us, we who don't do that, and them, those who do that. Even in a small office-like or family situation, an awful lot of that goes on. So just to point out and highlight this human tendency to create sides and create little teams and us and them and we're on and, and cling to your own side, this goes to really to the heart of two of the most important teachings of Buddhism. One, how we take concepts and ideas to be referring to something solid and permanent. You know, so some little little thing somebody did or qualities like race, gender, caste, social class, we take something like that and we assume that it means something and we use it for this divisive purpose to create an us and a them. And then these tendencies get enlisted in our deep need to seek safety in various kinds of identification and tribal belongings. Yeah, so then this tendency does begin to shape the experience of groups of people who, are, who have been somehow classified in that way and marginalized in a society as the, the them, the not us. And then there's a real need for support. There is a need, I, I just want to say, there is a need of finding like-minded people and people who've been through the same experiences you have and, and meeting with those people and learning to stand together and support each other when harm is being done. So it's not that we, it's not that there's never a need for that. But the Buddhist practice asks if we can bring awareness to this process. We need to notice any tendencies. We always want to exaggerate the facts that support our side or we want to generalize from the worst examples we can think of of the other side and the best examples from our side. So are we using our speech to solidify these concepts and to, to continue to come from an intention to sharpen the divisions? Or can we keep our intentions aimed toward healing and concord? And can we stay open to seeing the real details and particulars of each unique situation and each unique person? And can we let in new information? So seeing this in... Smaller personal context is also very important. If you're having difficulty working with someone, for example, you may need to discuss it with a friend. It may not be healthy to just keep all this difficulty bottled up in you. But how can you do that from a motive that's the motive of healing and preserving your good intentions of not creating an us and them? It's again sort of like this this teaching from Chunky about framing it in a truth-preserving way. Like, I'm having difficulty and I need to talk to you about this and I need to just present my point of view even though I know it's just partial and 
can you help me work through my feelings in this situation is an entirely different reason for discussing a third party with somebody than just simply trying to elicit an ally in your point of view entirely. I've heard of people taking on a practice of never talking about a person who isn't present. That's, that's a real challenge. But it's so good to always ask yourself, would I be able to say what I'm saying about that person if they were here? And what are you adding on that is not something you would be able to say to them? A story I've always liked is um, a teacher told of being in a group where somebody, everybody was gossiping about some third party and how difficult they were in the office. And there was this guy who was usually quiet and he never said anything. And he just, at some point, he just said very quietly, hmm, I wonder why they do that. Meaning the third party. I wonder why he does that. And it just shifted the whole conversation away from he's, you know, he's so stupid and so forth to make people think, well, hmm, okay, this is a human being and there is some reason why he does that. I wonder what that is. And just shifted it to a more compassionate uh, way of relating to the situation. So the third uh, quality is to refrain from harsh or abusive speech. What is the tone of our speech. This could come into our choice of vocabulary, but it's a lot about the tone of voice. And the tone and the meaning of what we're saying, it's conveyed not only in sound waves, but by expressions and gestures and who knows what all other chemical and energetic signals that we're sending when we're in speaking with people. Communication arises from the whole body. It's a reflection of the state of the openness or the contractedness of our whole body. Voice comes out of that. It comes out of the breath, the constricted breath and the constricted voice. And it's received by the whole body. It lands whole body on another person and it triggers associations from anywhere and anything that might have happened to that person we'll find that speech and especially these overtones they're contagious so a conversation tends toward matching in tone and volume if you're mindless you might wind up if your kind of intention is to be agreeable you might wind up in a kind of mindless coercive agreement oh me too me too me too I'm just like that I like that yes me too and you really kind of lost touch with yourself (laughs) somewhere along the way Or it can be escalating mutual resistance and defensiveness if it's spoken in a hostile way. So true communication, again, involves realizing the effect that your speech is having on the other person. When we speak in a harsh and abusive tone, that is probably just about the entire content of what you're actually communicating. Because right away it triggers reactivity that can then shut down the person's openness to the nuance of words or logic or whatever you're saying. What they're hearing is a hostile attack and you will get that kind of response. So the Buddha cautions, do not wage wordy warfare. (laughs) He has this long paragraph that I don't have time to read where he's cautioning the monks against uh, giving a typical example of monks fighting with each other over doctrine. It's, it could be a you know, fairly mild internet comment from today of, you idiot, you know, this sort of thing. And don't wage war- wordy warfare. In fact, speech is one of the places that we can maybe most easily see our little remaining tendencies to cruelty actually manifesting. You know, we might not be so inclined to physically hurt people but boy we can get in there with the sharp verbal daggers and little little zingers that we know are intended to hurt people but we know how we respond to this harsh speech when we hear it you can notice practice you know watching the news or something and notice how this lands on you there's quite a difference it can be very satisfying to and gratifying in a way to just vent what you're feeling it feels maybe empowering and it's a great rush of energy but when that's landing on you it's entirely different it really feels like you've been hit by something and it's not it's an entirely different experience on both sides of the work so you can practice with this internally with noticing you know notice 
imaginary, do you ever have imaginary arguments and discussions in your mind? I'm sure you do, how, what you're going to say to somebody. How often do you practice seeking, practice imagining listening well? <laughs> do you practice imagining trying to stay calm, trying to learn something new? trying ways so that it will not escalate or are you do you fall in more to practicing your zingers and practicing just this is exactly how I would put that person down so just notice how you're practicing because that's probably what you'll wind up doing and we've talked a lot about the inner voices of the inner critic that um, the tone of voice of some of this inner criticism is quite amazing it's all out of proportion to the situation that's it's referring to and it's really interesting to notice that. And that can help you feel energetically when you're just talking to yourself. You'll have the time to sit back and feel energetically the kind of the contracted areas of the breath and the vocal channels and the kind of a certain kind of twistedness that creates these harsh tones. So the final factor of right speech is to refrain from idle chatter. The Buddha has this great list of topics of speech to be avoided by the contemplatives. Talking about kings, robbers. Well, there goes PBS. <laughs> Ministers of state, armies, alarms, battles, food and drink, clothing, furniture, garlands and scents, relatives, vehicles, villages and towns, women and heroes, <laughs> the gossip of the street, tales of the dead, Philosophical discussions of the past and future, the creation of the world and the sea, talk of whether things exist or not. All that is idle chatter <laughs> for a monastic <laughs> speech. And instead, you're, you are encouraged to engage in speech that is purposeful and connected with the goal, which for monastics and increasingly for some of us is the goal to really understand and free ourselves from these unhelpful habits of mind. So this was a 2,500-year-old clickbait there, all those topics that people wanted to talk about. But of course, it's one thing that we want to be socially friendly, right? I mean, if we, had to, if we had to only walk up to people and say, so, you know, how's liberation going? We would not maybe have very many friends <laughs> at the office. <laughs> so um, we need to be socially friendly. We need to find a balance here. But can you stay aware of your motive and aware of the effect that it's having on you, on your energy, and on what state of mind is being reinforced? It can be just exhausting to stay superficial for a long time. A friend of mine was talking, who's been just getting into this, about a dinner party she went to where the entire conversation was just about different brands of things to hook up the TV to the computer and comparing, you know, and that uh, that seemed to be the common denominator of what everybody knew about, and they talked about it for hours and hours and hours, and it was just exhausting. One of the last work parties that I went to, was very sweet, dear people at work, but all they could seem to find to talk about was alcohol, and different brands of alcohol, and different <laughs> kinds of wine, and when they were how drunk when, and you know, this this wasn't to me the essence of these people. These were wonderful people, but that was somehow the social common denominator of conversation that that that, that um, party came to. And it was just, it's just, this is not what I want to talk about all day. Um, and then it so quickly slides into the realm of opinions, and it plays into divisiveness and judgment of others. At least it plays into reinforcing the cultural norms of obsessive importance attached to material possessions and, and sense pleasures and entertainment. Those are the chief topics. You know, so how can we have a light touch with participating in a little bit of this? You know, and then somehow it takes an interesting skill to somehow experiment with diverting the conversation. You know, well, what did, what did that movie, how did it hit you? What did you get out of it you know some some question that just is a little more leading in the direction of something real other than it's really a way to we need to find ways to allow the conversation to deepen rather than have it continue to be something where we're trying to hold each other at arm's length which keeps reinforcing this real loneliness and isolation with our private anxieties and experience some of what we can work with uh internally on this one is 
our ease with silence. How comfortable are you with uh, standing back and not necessarily having to be right up there getting your word in all the time? Or can you just, can you let, uh, you know, take a walk with a friend and not have to be talking all the time, actually take time to appreciate what you're walking through? Of course, this is why we meditate, to calm the nervous tension that fuels a lot of this activity. It's also great to appreciate the Sangha. Here we have a group of people and friends and a place to meet people that we do have something to talk about with each other, which is important. So it's very, it's a precious thing that we have here that we're developing a vocabulary and a shared interest in areas of personal development where we have topics for conversation that we can bring up easily with each other or at least we can try. (laughs) If it's not easy, it's a place to practice to try to bring up with each other what's really going on. So all these are just ways that we can more become able to more consciously use speech in a way that helps to foster the conditions and the change of heart in ourselves and in others where that's needed. And we see how speech flows very directly from our views and from our intentions. It causes tremendous harm if it's not used with mindfulness and wisdom. And it can be a channel of connection and harmony and teaching and healing and compassion when it's used skillfully. So it's always interesting that this month falls to include the holidays, the Christmas holidays, when a lot of people have many challenging family encounters to work with speech. So it's actually a great month for practicing wise speech. And uh, I hope it's fruitful for you. So we want now to get into groups. We'll just have a little discussion about this topic. Let's get in groups of four. If if you just, yeah, find four people and if you are an orphan, come forward and we'll sort you out. So let's do this in the form where we just go around and around. So you don't give a whole monologue, but you could tell a short short little incident, you know, or story, something you observed, and then go on to the next person. We'll hope to get around a couple of times in, uh, in 15 minutes or so. So I won't ring bells in the middle, but just be sensitive to telling one little story or making one point. Yeah, it's going to be about right speech. I haven't given you, I haven't read it yet. I'm just setting the form. And as usual, we won't be engaging in crosstalk, advice giving, me tooing, any, you know, you're not speaking to each other exactly. You're, you're looking in your own heart and seeing what it would be useful to you to articulate today. And then you're practicing listening when the other people are speaking. So I'm sure that most of what I said was not exactly news to you. You've been working with this for a a while, either formally or informally. So the question is, what have you learned? Maybe about your intentions and views, but what have you learned or observed from reflecting on situations where you have spoken falsely or divisively or harshly? If you never have, how did you do that? (laughs) (laughs) We're assuming kind of you probably have to some degree. So what have you learned from reflecting on situations or you have spoken falsely or divisively or harshly? So we'll take a minute to just contemplate this and then we'll start. 